0: In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. An epiphany is a moment of revelation, when suddenly everything makes sense. In some cases, not only does it hold a present meaning, but in this moment, suddenly both the past and the future make sense, too. An epiphany helps us look forward, look backward, and in so doing, grants meaning for today. But for the ancients, an epiphany meant more than just a new idea or a new understanding, although it held the same function. But rather, an epiphany was an incarnation, a visible manifestation of a god, or the solemn visitation of a ruler who was venerated as a god. It is in this meaning that we find the origins of our Feast of the Epiphany. Epiphany has not always been just about the three kings. Earlier in the 3rd, 4th, and 5th century, both the East and the West celebrated three epiphanies on January 6th. They celebrated the coming of the wise men, but also the baptism of Jesus and the wedding in Cana. All these were moments of epiphanies, sudden appearances of God. And I'd like us to think of all these ways that God reveals himself to us today, and not just this one epiphany of the wise men. One writer recalling that the church's original celebration of epiphany centered around these three events rather than one, noted that each event manifested God in a way that mightily disrupted the status quo, the version of reality that had become comfortable, the state of things, the turn of events the expected turn of events. Israel's new king is born in the lowliest of places, a manger, and yet later important men from the east, call them wise men or kings, come to worship him. Perhaps they too expected the star to be set over a palace rather than over a hidden dwelling in the little town of Bethlehem. No earthly king received them gladly Rather, they became embroiled in the intrigue and murderous jealousy of Herod's court. And so, too, those who came to be baptized by John, who thought perhaps that he, John the Baptist, was the Messiah, were told that the very prophet, by that very prophet, that a greater prophet than he was present, one who baptized not only with water, but with the Holy Spirit. How odd that must have sounded to a people who believed in only one God. And finally, the guests at the wedding in Cana did not expect their host to save the best wine until last. They thought they were simply attending an ordinary wedding on an ordinary day, enjoying friends and family. And then the most extraordinary thing happened. And they must have wondered for days and maybe years afterwards, who was that that changed that water into wine? The unity of these three events was understood by the ancient church in a way that might seem very odd to our modern perspective because that image of the wedding and the bridegroom is central. Listen to an ancient antiphon sung at Epiphany by the early church in the 3rd and 4th centuries. Today, the bridegroom claims his bride, the church, since Christ has washed her sins away in Jordan's water, the Magi hasten with their gifts to the royal wedding, and the wedding guests rejoice, for Christ has changed the water into wine. <laughs> Alleluia. This day, then, also celebrated the church. The birth of the king was the coming of the bridegroom to his bride. Christ came to claim a people. No hint here. Of our modern individual epiphanies, our solo revelations. Rather, this is an epiphany that is a corporate one for all people. Clearly, the Sion of Isaiah, the place of the eternal worship of the king of Israel, is now understood to be the church. Well, today we will celebrate and we do celebrate just the visitation of the Magi and next week we will celebrate the baptism of Jesus I'm not sure what happened to that feast of the Cana I mean, I think that would be one that I personally would really enjoy I mean can't you see coming up to the you know and, and all of a sudden rather than your ordinary red table wine there's like opus one <laughs> you know I think that that would be a feast day that we might even get more than Christmas but all joking aside I would like to think of the day of today of the ways in which the coming of the Magi was an epiphany and how that ties in so beautifully to our other two texts and to that ancient antiphon which I just recited. Each of our texts today speak of events which suddenly reinterpret the past and cast new light on the future. Let us begin with Isaiah In the 6th century before Christ, for the nation of Israel, there had never been a darker time. They had lost their country, their home. They had lost their temple. The everlasting kingdom of David had seemingly come to an end. Even though we live in a very different time, the prophecy of Isaiah from our text today can speak deeply to us. Isaiah knew what we know and still experience, the darkness that covers the earth and the thick darkness that is over the people. The darkness of the sin that is in the world, the darkness of loss, rejection, homelessness, poverty, and war are still very much with us. This reality was driven home to us when on a December Advent day in a village of Sandy Hook, Connecticut, there was a horrific murder of 20 helpless first-graders and six of their teachers in an elementary school, shot and murdered in a place that was supposed to be safe. Yes, the darkness can become very thick. If there is ever a time when the cry of Advent became more real to me, it was at that moment. Yes, Lord Jesus, come, come, come quickly, Lord. And in the middle of what appears to be a joyous proclamation, there is a lament from Isaiah. And then Isaiah proclaims that the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will appear over you. Nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. The meaning of Matthew's account of the arrival of the wise men from the east is appreciated more fully when read in the light. Of our text from Isaiah 60. We do not know where the Magi were from, but it is interesting that they probably came from the very lands that the Jewish people had been exiled to. Isaiah in Isaiah 60 not only promises the restoration of Zion, but that kings and nations will come to the brightness of its dawn to worship at the feet of the new king and that dawn has come with the birth of Jesus, as the story of the Magi illustrates. The Magi believed that the star they saw rising in the east would lead them to a child who was to be the king of the Jews. The first chapter of Matthew takes great pains to trace the lineage of Jesus as Messiah and tells the story of how Mary and Joseph came to know that she was to become the God-bearer. But in the second chapter, Matthew brings the event of Jesus' birth out of the shadows and into the light of the star of Bethlehem. In one short passage, Matthew recounts the revelation to both the Jews and to some Gentile wise men that Jesus is indeed the king of the Jews, the Messiah, the promised ruler of Israel. Matthew's account of the visitation of the Magi brings back the promises of Isaiah 60, the promised light. "...has come to those in darkness, and those who see it, the kings, are radiant and rejoice. Isaiah speaks of multitudes of camels and of kings bringing gold and frankincense as they proclaim the praise of the Lord." Note that Matthew does not say three kings. I mean, that is a tradition that only came much later, something to do with the fact that there are three gifts recorded in this text. But, Probably it was more likely a whole caravan that arrived from the east, which included maybe many magi and their servants and supplies and the like, and yes, many camels. But was this appearance of the kings to venerate a baby in a manger an unexpected epiphany? Perhaps for those present that day, but not for Mary. Mary already knew. In what has now become the song of the church, the Magnificat, Mary prophesied that through this baby she bore, the promises made to Abraham and his children were fulfilled, and that through this child, the mighty were to be cast down and the lowly lifted up. And Mary knew that the promised deliverer spoken of in Isaiah Was truly her lowly baby son come to one of lowly estate. The prophecies that all nations would come to worship through Israel, the true God, had come to pass. Mary's journey was not an unexpected journey, although we might recall that subtitle to The Hobbit, the new film, that I don't think that describes the journey of mary and joseph it is evident that mary and joseph were steeped in the writings of the prophets mary and joseph were prepared for unexpected events but they expected their lives and the religion of their people to be changed forever by the birth of their new son i believe that as mary we are to also treasure the events that are recorded in scripture surrounding the birth and the worship of the baby jesus and to carry from them the challenge that we are to be an expectant people. Expectant each day that Jesus will reveal himself to us in many epiphanies. Just as the prophet Isaiah challenges the people of Israel to step out of darkness into the light of day, each day we too must turn our back on darkness and seek light and seek love And seek Jesus. In our gospel story, the Gentile kings have come afar to worship the King of the Jews. But in our epistle reading, we find God's true movement. It is God in Christ who has sought out the Gentiles, who seeks all people and all nations to come to his light. The opposite of revelation is hiddenness and mystery. And today's epistle reading offers a meaning of mystery and hiddenness in the New Testament. And hear me on this. Mystery in the New Testament has nothing to do with the quote-unquote mysteriousness of God. But rather, mystery in the New Testament is, in fact, the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. Mystery is revelation, not hiddenness. Paul, in our reading today, we see that his epiphany also was not a message or an idea, but a person. And although Paul does not use the word epiphany or manifestation in our text in Ephesians, something like that is what he's trying to describe. In the middle of this letter, which has the church as its central subject matter, after Paul has reminded his readers that it is both Jews and Gentiles who constitute the church by the will and grace of God, Paul interjects an autobiographical note about the revelation he received regarding the identity of Jesus Christ, and I quote, the mystery made known to me by revelation. Paul wants to make it known to his reader that what he knows of Jesus came only through revelation, the appearance of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself appeared to Paul on the Damascus Road. That revelation, as other epiphanies, came by way of a bright light and a voice from heaven. And the old Paul, who could not possibly understand what was happening, his response was really a cry. Who are you, Lord? Who are you, God? And the answer that was to turn his world upside down was, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. God is. Is Jesus. At that moment, Paul realized that indeed something new was happening in Jesus Christ and that God's eternal purposes, the promises given to Sarai and Abram, the promises contained in the prophets' writings that Paul most likely knew from memory, were now to be understood in an unimagined way through God's emptying of himself to become a human being. Mystery here in the New Testament does not refer to a mysterious God who cannot be known, but to the mystery of God's plan for salvation being revealed in the incarnation of God, Jesus Christ. Paul speaks of that very day when he received that light. And I quote from the passage, when he received insight into the mystery of Christ, which has not been made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has been na- now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are now fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. See how wonderfully how these three readings work together with the promised light and the king's the Gentile came coming to worship the Lord, and then Paul's proclamation of a gospel that is also for the Gentiles. And although Paul considered himself to be the least of all the apostles because he persecuted the church, he is now, in fact, the bearer of these unsearchable mysteries revealed in Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, the message that God is drawing together a new people from all peoples, which is the church. Perhaps we can now understand the earlier emphasis upon the church on the Feast of Epiphany because it is the church of Jesus Christ which is given the ministry of reconciliation to proclaim the mysteries of Jesus Christ in the world. The rest of Paul's letter is basically an instruction in how the church does this, how the calling given to the church can only be fulfilled by a people who are now joined together together under their head. A people who now have, and again from Paul, have boldness to access the Father through faith in Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of that message that often pops up on our computers, access denied. Access here is not being given the correct password or permission to receive special material special revelations because we are special and important. Access here means being escorted into the presence of God through grace and grace alone, through Jesus Christ, because the gift and the giver are one. Paul understood that mystery revealed in Jesus Christ changed how one looked back and how one looked forward. What had been revealed to other generations now read differently, The prophets were now read under the light of Christ. The church read the prophecies of Isaiah and understood that the light had truly come. On this Epiphany Sunday, we too look backwards with Isaiah, and we look forwards with Isaiah, and we look to today. We know that our king has come and broken the bonds of death and sin, broken the bonds of that thick darkness. But we also look forward to a time when there will be no more darkness, when this promise will reach its true fulfillment at Christ's second coming, when the Lord Jesus Christ will claim his kingship over a new creation. Then the bonds of sin will be broken forevermore. And yet, in this in-between time, how do we truly see the revelations, the epiphanies, that God uses us to help us on our way? we could despair as we confront the evil of our world. Indeed, we are sojourners as the people of Israel were sojourners in a land that was not their own. We know the loneliness and the rejection of that sojourn. And yet, we also know that we have already been brought home. We have already been plucked from our exile. Today, The bridegroom claims his bride, the church, the ancient verse sings. Our home is the church, the place where God manifests himself to us each Sunday in the breaking of the bread and the drinking of the wine. We know this is our home because God has given us the eyes of faith to see him there on the altar and given us hearts to receive him. For we are to be an expectant people. But an expectant people is also an attentive people. And at the end of this sermon, let me bring up this theme of attentiveness, because I think it's such an important theme when we're thinking about epiphany. Because if we aren't paying attention, we miss the epiphany. Lift up your eyes and look around, Isaiah challenges us. We need to look for the light shining through this darkness. We can begin by being even attentive to what is happening today in our midst, attentive to the drama of the Eucharist unfolding. We come with our laments. We recite a law that we cannot possibly obey in ourselves and at all times and in all places. We cry out for forgiveness we cry out to God that he will truly find a place for us in his coming kingdom. But we also rejoice and give thanks that we do indeed in Jesus Christ have a place in his coming kingdom. In our Eucharistic meal, we anticipate that heavenly feast Isaiah foretells in the city of Zion. In the great thanksgiving of the Eucharist, we cry out, Hosanna, with a choir of angels unseen. We are told that we are joining together with all saints in all times. An expectant people must learn to use their holy imagination as we lift up our praises to our King. We know that our King has come and that we receive spiritual nourishment in the fellowship of the bread and wine. An attentive people is also prepared to receive God Monday through Saturday. If we are not expectant and attentive, we might not notice the many ways that God is present, through the laughter of a child, the understanding of a friend, even the beautiful winter sunset. Even in the deepest grieving in Sandy Hook after the math of the killing, one witnessed the presence of God. In the many ways a grieving community came together and the many acts of kindness that were extended Where does such love and comfort come from in this dark world? From the graces of God, and only from the graces of God, if we are paying attention. A friend of mine likes to remind me that the best things happen in life if we show up. Do we show up for God? Do we hear him each day through his word, receive him in the silent moments of prayer? Inattentive people is a faithful people, and it is a faithful people who will be surprised by God. Being an attentive people also means placing ourselves intentionally in places that will help us take our blinders off. Who are our Gentiles? Who are those that we consider so different from us that uncomfortableness might set in? Perhaps placing ourselves in places where our blinders will come up, means something like joining with those in our church who tutor on Tuesday nights or who visit the elderly, or perhaps it means befriending someone at work who is friendless and alone, and perhaps the hardest of all, being willing to listen to God when he asks us as ministers of the church to bring his message of reconciliation to those who are now far from him, To those who still dwell in the darkness. So, in this new year, let us look for the light, reach for the light, live in the light, and share the light. Amen.